0: Yeah. all right uh welcome back to another episode of the uncomfortable silence um we've been pretty busy doing different stuff today we went on um new england lacrosse journal and we did an episode with them and uh today we have julia mitchell with us um julia actually reached out to me when i started doing uh posting on social media and we started doing the podcast and it was kind of funny Kind of weird uh, that she had an extremely similar experience with her father dealing with dementia at a in a very similar time frame that we were dealing with uh, my mother with dementia. And we went to the same schools and we had no idea any of this was going on. And uh, she reached out when we started doing this. So yeah, Julia, we're happy to have you.
1: Yeah, thank you guys so much. I really, again, commend what you're doing with this whole thing. And it's just amazing to be on here.
2: And you're an example of it. Can be right next door, like you were. and And uh, that's one of the things we talked about having the conversation out there because maybe you know if more people did, we could help our neighbor. Okay, so this is great. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, uh, we get to start. We just wanted to have
0: you tell the kind of timeline of when your dad, when you started noticing stuff, when because for us it was. I was in like seventh-ish grade, yeah. third notes and stuff, pretty young. Uh, what was it for you?
1: Yeah, so it's funny. For me, it was in eighth grade. um, And this was coming off, you know, in end of sixth grade, beginning of seventh grade. My mom actually got diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. So we were already coming off of something that was extremely traumatic. Um, she was diagnosed with ocular melanoma, which affects five to six people per 1 million uh, in a year. So that was already something that we were, you know, going back and forth for treatments and stuff. Um, and thankfully, uh, she's cancer free and still cancer free to this day. But so we were already kind of coming off something, you know, pretty, pretty traumatic. But um, around April of uh, my eighth grade year, my dad started, you know, changing the Wi-Fi passwords constantly and would kind of complain that he thought that our neighbors were hacking into our Wi-Fi, um, which was really confusing because, you know, I guess that could have happened. So you kind of just ignore it, I guess. You know, looking back retrospectively, a lot of these things, you know, seem like they were screaming at us. But then you don't you don't really uh, pay much attention. But. um. You know, in April, we had gone to Baltimore to visit my brother, who had been uh, on the police force down there for a few years at this point, and we had gone to DC, and it was great. Um, but we were back at my brother's apartment, and my dad had got up to use the bathroom and walked out the front door, and then was like made a joke, and he was like, "Oh, this isn't where the bathroom is," and then like, so we all kind of looked at each other, and we were like, "Oh, you know, that's that's a little strange," you know, um. And so he just kept, you know, throughout that year and into that summer, he would make little comments. Um, it'd be 11 p.m. at night in the middle of the summer and he'd be like, All "Right, time to get ready for school. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? It's the middle of the summer. Um, and it was he would just keep making these comments, just things that kind of caught you off guard, but, you know, weren't enough at that point for me, you know, I was still pretty young. I didn't really realize the magnitude of what was happening. Um, and then, you know, carrying into my freshman year of high school, it became a thing. He started, um, complaining about the insulation in our house, which we had had for years. And he started complaining that the insulation was making him sick. Um, but, you know, he would bring up these articles about how insulation can affect people. But, you know, looking back, those articles were like in ways of like allergies, but he was kind of going on the basis of feeling mentally sick, you know, it looks like. Um, so I remember it was my freshman year, the first snow day, and I had gotten up, you know, my mom didn't wake me up. She was nice enough not to wake me up on the first snow day of the year. So I woke up and it was, you know, bright and snowy. And I went out into my living room, my parents were fighting and my mom turned to me and said, dad took $10,000 out of our bank account, put it in the basement. And he was planning on uh, taking out the insulation behind our backs because we kind of hadn't been paying attention um, to his complaints. And, you know, me, it's kind of the thing looking back, you feel embarrassed to how you reacted to these things. And I was very um mad I mean you're a teenage girl you say you're like you're not taking out my wall also it's the middle of the winter like we're not taking out <laughs> the insulation in our house and um it got so it was just you know turmoil that whole that whole snow day something that I was you know so looking forward to and so because back then snow days were like you could actually like play in the snow and stuff and you had a day off from school but it was just all day fighting
2: Did and- you yeah have like friends you guys socialized with and at that time like did his friends ever notice or you guys share what you were seeing with friends
1: yeah so on the basis of you know his friends I think his main thing was going to concerts like he loved going to concerts with his friends you know he worked full-time so it wasn't like they wouldn't go to a bar on the weekends but you know if there were concerts or if there were like town concerts or events he would go there but it was never. And he was also working at this point, too. It was, like, never to the point where anyone would say anything. And I feel like it was probably similar to how we reacted, where it's, like, these just little comments where you just kind of blow them off. What did um, he do for work? So he was um, an inspector for medical machinery. So he used, like, trigonometry and math to, you know, inspect these medical machines. And it's it's crazy because he only stopped working the end of... Um, my freshman year after there was an incident where he showed up to a police station barefoot saying the Mafia was after him so it that was like I guess we kind of thought it was like a mental um like a breakdown of some sort we didn't assume dementia you know looking back all these things they were they were strange and the comments kind of continued and the Wi-Fi passwords kept changing. And he would stop using the microwave because he said it was radioactive, you know, just different stuff. But he worked he worked the night shift. So he worked from like three to maybe one a.m. Um, and it was only him and another person on that shift. So we don't know if it's just because he was mostly working alone and, and no one noticed. Um, but it, it was definitely weird. I mean, he would forget his lunches more often and we would just drive them over. But again, you don't you don't think much of it until these paranoid events started happening that escalated it to the point where, you know, I think he was on disability for um, like a mental thing because he went to the psych ward. They took him, the police took him to the psych ward after he had showed up at the police station. And that was kind of the paperwork Um, where it was, he probably shouldn't be working anymore.
0: Uh, I, I think it's important. I want to make it clear that we're smirking and kind of because it's and it's weird to we look, look into, into. how uh, similar some of the stuff is, and I'm sure you don't think we're laughing at you, but for some of the people listening, it is extremely strange how close some of like You to... mentioned the microwave, the microwave, the, the yeah. hacking. Uh, my mom used to sit in the living room. She was in IT, so she would sit on her computer, and she was convinced people were hacking, like, there's just certain stuff that is so weird. How yeah, you're actually, and you live maybe ten minutes away from us, and we're living the same thing, so it's just super weird.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's like people what... more educated and they use their brains for work, like technology. are am more apt to have dementia.
0: Yeah, like, like you, <laughs> like your dad was seems like a very smart math, yeah. and our, my mom was yeah. constantly yeah. working on IT computers, so it's just strange.
1: Yeah, that's that's literally the reason why I reached out to you because. I remember, like, like you said, we had, you know, mutuals or whatever, and you posted your first episode, and I remember just watching it, and just, like, being, just, like, in awe, and being like, this is someone, and I think with this disease, too, like, and again, at this point, you know, we didn't really know what was going on when all this stuff was happening, but looking back now, because that's when I, when I saw your um, episode, you know, it was kind of after everything, but looking back, just how similar, Things were, and I I think I felt so isolated because I didn't think, and you still don't hear it much. I mean, now with um, Bruce Willis, unfortunately, having the disease, there's definitely more word out there. But, you know, before thinking you're the only person, you know, within miles upon miles of radius or even in the state, like you think you're the only person and it feels like that. So just seeing what you guys had to endure was so similar to mine. It brought a sense of comfort after, you know.
0: And one of the things um, I talk about often, and uh, I think we did a whole episode on it, but um, is like how looking at—I used to look at my peers, like you just said—and I was like, I was almost jealous of them, like, oh, they don't have to deal with it, and it it made it very difficult for me because I thought I was the only one living uh, some strange fever
2: dream. Um, obviously now we're not, not to be true, but Julie, I used to travel around lecturing and for a while, I, my lecture, I'm always sports background, but I ended up talking about my, and my name of my lecture was my house is normal. <laughs> and I would tell them three or four examples like you're given and mm-hmm. we can have it now. Right. But at the time, no one knew what we would, but it was, I was kind of letting it out that way. I'd tell people about talking to furniture and, and your example of not knowing the time of day, we dealt with that, too, with yeah. um, your dad make, you know, get up, it's ready to school or what day of the week it is. Because with dementia, the clock, the inner clock doesn't work, doesn't tell you when to eat, doesn't tell you what time of day it is, when to sleep. Uh, did your dad sleep?
1: So, yeah, it's funny. He he slept more. So, like, after, um, after he stopped working, you know, he was home alone for most of the day. And, you know, he would be fine, you know, until he would, you know, he started running away. And then, you know, he had to be at my grandmother's for most of the day until I got home from school. And then, you know, I would watch him, but I would come home and he'd just be napping. And even before that, I I do remember my mom, you know, even before he started you know showing really big signs my mom would be like jimmy you're always sleeping like wake up you're always sleeping like it was always um and my dad you know he was a napper but it was sleeping so much so much more than than working
2: normal nights like especially working nights.
1: No. yeah yeah with just sleeping um sleeping a lot and you know when i would come home from school you know my job was to kind of look after him not my job but you know i my mom you know the bills have to get paid you know we don't we don't come from money my mom worked two jobs um and i was fortunate enough to to go to bishop fian um for for high school and you know i was on a lot of scholarship but still like things you know had to bills had to be paid and especially with my dad not working my mom was working, you know, doubles and at both jobs just to try to, you know, pull, pull things together. So I would how
2: come. Did you, how did you and your mom get along during that? Cause there's more pressure on mom and you're, you've got your pressure from your view, but that's a lot of stuff going on.
1: Yeah. Uh, so me and my mom, yeah. So to describe that kind of dynamic, my dad was always the more, um, Super gentle, kind of timid, you know, pretty quiet, like easygoing is a great word. Um, my mom is definitely more hyper, definitely more, you know, extroverted. Um, but but it's funny because we weren't an I love you kind of family, we weren't a hugging type of family, we weren't a very same. I grew up without, yeah, I didn't
0: get a hug till I was 15. So I feel
1: I didn't get an I love you until I believe after my dad died was when we started mine
0: mine was a couple months ago
1: so yeah and it's and it's a weird it's a weird thing
2: (laughs) it's
1: it's a it's a weird thing because you know and I used to even cringe I remember my friends who did come from those kinds of families you know when we'd hang up the phone they'd be like all right love you Julia bye and I'd be like okay bye you know I, I couldn't even say it to my friends because you know we just weren't that kind of vulnerable family. So I think during all this um you know, my mom and I, we really never opened up to each other. And I think we kind of just, you know, you get into a routine of just how things are and you don't talk about it as much.
2: Is your mom Irish?
1: She is. She's half Irish, half Italian.
2: Well, I was raised by an Irish and I mean, it's embarrassing now because Quentin can, you know, give me a hard time or give me a hug. Hard... And it's funny, yesterday I was talking to a uh a woman probably late twenties and we get up to leave the conversation. I go to shake her hand. She goes, Oh no, I'm a hugger. And I was like freaking out. I didn't know how to react to this person I had just met, but it's, it is interesting because you are a, a product of your path, right?
1: Yeah. It's, it's so funny that you say that because my grandfather, he was full Irish. He was a Boston firefighter, had a Clover tattoo, you know, very, very Irish. And I think, you know, they kind of had that same, and I discovered this in therapy, Um, you know, they kind of had that same relationship too, where it was never, um, I love you, it was more, I guess you could say, you know, acts of service, you know, she was always there for him, he was always there for her, same with my grandmother, you know, and same with my family too, we were always there for each other, and we just kind of Believed that it was implied, I guess. So it was never, it was never an I love you. It was never a hug. It was always a great job. You did amazing, you know, at something, but it was never like that. So I think that's how it carried out throughout this whole process. And then when he finally passed, I think the grief kind of um, shattered whatever wall of, um, you know, whatever wall was put up to just let full vulner- vulnerability kind of shine through.
0: So I want to ask you a question on something that you brought just brought up because, um, you know, one of the things we hope to help people who listen to us and there are a lot of people that listen to us that take stuff that we say. And, um, I'm not a therapy person because I have no problem talking about, uh, my issues to anybody really, which I'm sure people I know probably don't like all the time, but, um, I guess I'll ask you how had, how did therapy help you, um, get through this challenge just because there's so many people looking for different ways to handle things I think
1: yeah absolutely um so this kind of it started right after my dad kind of stopped working and you know September October of that year so kind of like you said like the time clock of when they sleep when they wake you know it's it's distorted so he would be up in the middle of the night Um, slamming on walls. He would, he used to play guitar, but then he would strum it and it didn't sound pretty. And at 3am, you know, so I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. So I would show up to school, purple bags under my eyes and teachers would pull me out of class to, to, to let me sleep. And when I wasn't sleeping, sometimes I was just crying in the bathroom. And, you know, I had um, some friends that I had confided in, you know, who I trusted enough. Cause I was also embarrassed. Like, that's the thing too, is like, this to me was embarrassing for some reason. I think it's it's just the stigma. I don't know. I just, I felt embarrassed.
2: Making us feel like we're supposed to, you know, it's, that's one of the hardest things we've been hearing is, and it goes along with not saying anything, you don't want to be judged because they're going to pick on you with something.
1: Right. And, and I was a freshman in high school and this is when you make, you know, your impression of yourself and, you know, different, different stuff like that. And so I was just, I was so embarrassed And, um, yeah, so I confided in, you know, some of my friends and they just saw the mental toll that it took on me. And my mom had already kind of told the school what was going on. Um, again, this was a private Catholic school, so, you know, everything's very tight knit. It, It was very supportive. Um, but my friends went to my guidance counselor and kind of let him know the, the real, things that were happening Are
2: you um okay with that
1: at first I wasn't because yeah. I I don't I I think I saw therapy as something that was meant for people who were weak and I didn't want to think of myself as weak or think that I you needed yeah You're and,
2: and
1: they, they were they're amazing friends and I'm and I'm so grateful for that now but yeah back then I was I kind of felt betrayed I guess because I had confided in these people and they you know they were wanting what's best for me but I um and I I never took it out on them or anything but you know I I was you know very I kind of felt betrayed and wasn't sure if I you know should should share um other things with them you know about my dad but um my mom had been contacted by my guidance counselor who suggested therapy and again, I was pretty reluctant. I um, saw it, and, and my mom also comes from um, a generation. I don't know if um, you have any, you know, say on this, but she therapy was never um, something that I mean she didn't go to therapy until a couple months ago. Honestly, she was.
2: So you're saying you're so getting locked in the room. And told to come out when you're in a better place that's not therapy yeah. because that's how it was when I was a kid
1: yeah like that's that's what like so she never like she was supportive of me going but she I think she just had a different view on it probably from just generation so she was never um Cause I had tried to tell her even after, like, oh, like when I finally found out that this is great, like I tried to tell her and she was like, No, no, I'll never, I'll never do that. And, and I would feel but like I always tell Quentin
2: with his like his friends. He has a great group of friends. Mm-hmm. And my complaint about the age is that they don't look out for each other. And to hear <laughs> that your friends would even take the chance of upsetting you. Mm -hmm. They went trying to make sure you're
0: okay. Well, you, I think you're a good example of, well, I mean, you definitely handled everything a lot better than I did. Just telling your friends in the first place is already better than I did. And handling it the way that you did and trusting your friends to just tell them is more than I did at all. I didn't tell anybody. Uh, Your mom uh, telling the school what was going on and, like, we didn't until the barrier in trouble. Because and but we're very, I don't know, you know, we're prideful, and you know, I think a part of it was too that we're men, and
1: Mm -hmm, absolutely
0: say that with pride too. Mm -hmm. And then there's a social Culture. culture thing where you're supposed to tough it out, and we've learned now that that's not true. But I think it's a good example of that you should tell your friends because they only want what's in your best interest, and I failed to do.
2: It, it's I, very hard for your mom to walk that line, I would think. No matter how, I mean, I can relate to her. I don't think I'm as far on that. I knew when we had a major episode in the house. I knew there was an issue. You know, it was right there for me to see. So that's the first time we reached out to school at all, just to kind of share what was going on, as just to have an extra set of eyes. Right. And, um, and there was a lot of support there too. Again, reinforcing the idea that. We should
1: have done it earlier. Right, I think I think that's a big thing too. I think you know because I was, I don't want to say I was suffering before I went to therapy, but you know it was definitely lots of things going on in my head, lots of, lots of just rumination on things that were going on to the point where you know school, I felt like school was kind of an escape because that because that's where you know, as soon as I'd go home, I would have to you know watch my dad and deal with these episodes on the daily. But then school started to become a place where I I just felt like I had no refuge um anymore. And it and it just became really difficult. So yeah, so my mom um took me to a therapist. I remember we had our first session together and I was silent. I was completely silent because I was just thinking in my head, how is sitting across from someone um gonna fix this? Like my dad is like terminal. You know what I mean? Like there is nothing that will stop this. How is talking about
2: what was going on with your dad?
1: Yeah, yeah. This was like right after, right after we knew. Yeah. Um, yeah, he had gone after the first time he went to the psych ward for um again, showing up barefoot thinking that he was being chased by the mafia, which is like unreal for me to even say now. Like this, like it's well,
0: we had a Russian mob and yeah, we
1: have also the Russian lawn
0: in yeah. the house. There is some we we got it. It's not weird to us, but uh, yeah. everyone listening it's and that's we is weird. Weird. I know probably.
2: but that's <laughs> I mean we have to be able to realize this is how the brain works when it's not healthy, yeah. right? Yeah Just, you can't walk straight if your leg's bothering you and here's this part of us that we can't see mm-hmm. and we can't even ask the person going through it like we say I get upset with Cindy. Why are you on the computer all day? I thought you were looking at jobs and then she's showing us the guy on the computer is talking to her and it was an ad or something else. Yeah. And um It's normal it's, to us. This is yeah, yeah. it's it, exactly. over here anytime <laughs> you want. And, but we can we can relate to it and I think like you have to laugh. Like you I think
1: laughter is the
2: best medicine for anything, you know. And, <laughs>
1: you have to and it i mean yeah going off of that you guys had the russian mob in your house i would get notes left on my bed saying that there was an underground war happening and that i had to go get confirmation they
2: they were coming up through the closet floor and i mean that was so extreme (laughs) that that's when we're like okay like i stopped being uh confrontational on saying come on that's ridiculous and getting Mm. overreactive toward it and then we knew that okay this is way over our capabilities well we went we went to the movie theater and we saw a movie
0: it's collateral beauty with will smith i don't know if you've ever seen it but no i haven't um, you would probably like it based on your uh life experience but there's um the actor eddie norton in the movie his mother has dementia alzheimer's and he she says something about you know Something crazy,
2: calls him his brother's name,
0: and he, but he just goes along with it, and he just makes a joke out of it, and she just, he, she has no idea what was going on, anyways, right? And yeah. that's when we realize, you know, oh, maybe we can find a way to make this easier and not as hard on both of us. I don't know mm-hmm. if that for you. She
2: would laugh with us yeah. when we started doing that. She had no idea what
0: was right. right. Yeah. She thought she was thought great. we were crazy, which is yeah,
2: you know, yeah. Like, it's, it's, I remember being on a plane to Florida and watching the movie Still Alice. Okay. Have you seen that? So that was a book I had seen on, because I work in houses, people's desks mm-hmm. a long time. And so I'm looking at JetBlue, looking for a movie to watch, and I'm watching Still Alice. And I go, that's Cindy. It's <laughs> yeah. exactly what she was going through. It was it must- went, went to the,
0: uses the wrong bathroom in the movie, like stuff like that.
1: It's stuff that you can't even, yeah, like, I remember, I mean, at first to me it was scary because my dad would, like, I'd be, you know, home alone with him watching him, whatever, and he would take me to the window and be like, look at, they're looking at us through the trees, and I would be like, what are you, and and you get scared, and then, um, you know, you, you start at first, like, I feel like I kept not making excuses, but you want to believe it so bad, like, one time I came home from school, and, um, to you know, watch him, whatever. And I, you know, saw that his bedroom door was closed. So I, you know, just assumed he was taking a nap like normal. And I grabbed some goldfish, uh, watched Dr. Phil. That was like my thing. I love Dr. Phil because I feel like it kind of reminded
2: me. me Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, I mean like yeah, it reminded me that like other people were going through things yeah. like it made me not feel as bad about myself. And I was like, this is great. Um, And so after Dr. Phil, I, I knocked and I didn't get any reply, So I walked in and it was an empty bed. And so I like started screaming around my house and he was gone. And, you know, I laugh about it now, but a part of me was like, is this mafia real? Like, did the mafia take him? Like, is this what was happening? And um, you know, he ended up walking. Do you guys know the Norfolk train station? I live like right by there.
2: Very well,
1: yeah. Yeah, he ended up uh, walking up to the train station, took a train, went to Boston, wow. got off at South Station, went, and we can only assume that um, he hopped on an Amtrak because that's what we would take to go to Baltimore. And he ended up in uh, Connecticut, and they asked him wow. for a ticket. He didn't have a ticket um and they kicked him off the train and saw that did, he had...
2: ended up putting an ATP
1: out on him and that's how they found yeah him? yeah yeah so um to go back to like my point of view yeah I was you know screaming around the house screaming I mean louder you know because you think then your mind starts to go well what if he's in the woods what if he's got hit by a car what if yeah what if someone took him you know like just different stuff and um I called my mom and she came home from work But it was like an hour, hour and a half later. um, That was, you know, the commute, and I called my friend Brenna because I couldn't drive yet, and she had just gotten her license. And I said, "Brenna, um," this is my best friend, my best friend in the entire world." Um, And I said, "Brenna, my dad's missing," and she pulls up in her like nineteen ninety eight Saab convertible, and we just went like cruising around my town trying to like find him. Um, But yeah, so he ended up uh, (laughs) almost in Connecticut, and um, you know.
2: you know missing like how long did it take you to find
1: him uh it took us about a couple hours a couple was this hours
2: the first time like he had taken off
1: this yeah so this was when i was you know coming home from school and and watching him and we thought that he was you know fine to be alone um yeah we didn't know where where he was you know the police you know my mom called the police they were at our at our door um you know inside taking taking his information um and i was just thinking my dad is like dead. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what you start to think. You start to think, um, you know, the last time you said goodbye was like for real the last time, you know, it was scary. And, um, my mom had Brenna take me back to her house. So I didn't have to, um, you know, I guess hear like the adult things going on, the adult conversations of, you know, uh, we're going to find him, uh, you know, we're going to try to find him, but we don't, we don't know. Um, but but yeah, so um, he was down in almost Connecticut. I believe it's Westerly, Rhode Island was the stop. Because if you know Amtrak, they like, your freshman
2: year in high school.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, they found him uh, down in Westerly. Saw that he was kind of you know alterly, like mental um, altered mental state. That he had his wallet on him, and they called uh, Norfolk police, and that's how. That's how they found him, but um, yeah. So, but that, but that makes me laugh because you know you you think about these things where it's like the mafia there in the trees, and you are just so disheveled with confusion and desperation, just trying to trying to figure something out. But there's just it just got worse.
2: Doctors, then, like, had he been to doctors yet to get the dementia diagnosis? Because we had trouble with that, and then once this. Another warning day, right? This type of. Uh, mm-hmm. off. How did your household adjust to that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So he had been diagnosed, I believe it was a little bit after this. It was around this time. I can't remember if it was like right before or right after, but it was around that time. And my mom had taken him to a neurologist. I believe it was actually right after because of this. Um, and they administered, it's, I don't know if you're familiar, it's called the clock test where they ha- they have to like draw a clock. And if every, the clock. Every
2: time is... we went to the blind doctor, there was things in a circle, putting yeah. strings in so on three words. I'm going to ask you in five minutes what those words are.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just stuff like that. Um, and I, and I think he drew the clock, uh, warped. And so they called it, um early onset dementia but but something else too that like was really really hard um my mom you know some people had been telling my mom to kind of see a lawyer and get assets in order and then a lot of family members were like what are you talking about he's fine so she never saw a lawyer so when he ended up in a nursing home so he ended up in a nursing home because um I came home from school uh one day again and my grandmother had dropped him off but um I came home from school and sat down on my couch and it was like hard, like it like hurt to sit down. And I saw my softball bat. Um, I played competitive softball um, and I saw my softball bat wedged between the the couch cushions and there were knives um, under, under tables and um, cause he was very suspicious of our neighbors and he would, he started stealing their packages because he said that there was like crucial information or something. I don't know. It's wow. you, you know how that goes. Um, so then uh, my mom called the neurologist uh, again after, you know, he'd been diagnosed and because I was a minor, um, they had to take him out of the house uh, permanently.
2: Yeah. And that's, that was a big thing for me. She mm-hmm. was actually at home more than she should have longer than she should have been. Mm -hmm. Um, but we thought it was Lyme disease and we thought with treatment, it would get better. So, um, But that was a big day for us to have Cindy in a place where she was safe. And I actually went to the police and asked them how to do it before I called. And they were great. Um, But it's a horrible experience. I think I took her to get a coffee and a muffin. She couldn't talk at this time, but she would smile Mm -hmm. and go along to Mike's Deli (laughs) and um I said I'm gonna call and she got right in the back of the ambulance I felt horrible I mean that was that was the ultimate guilt for me at that moment
1: I I know and I know you know if my mom were here she would say the same exact thing and I think you know because when you know the ambulance came to get my dad um he was he was sleeping and I think just seeing him innocently sleeping, you know, in his bed for, I guess, the last time at that point, um, you know, and and walking out like it was he didn't really know what was going on. Do you know what I mean? So just yeah. seeing seeing him be taken out, you know, by these people, it it just it felt so you, you're right. You feel so guilty, but, uh, you know, yeah. it. it's not. And and this is a house, you know, this was my parents' starter house. This is, like, where they had lived for their whole life and, you know, or for their whole life when they had kids. Like, this was, you know, my dad's recliner. Like, he had a lazy boy recliner he loved. You know what I mean? Just, like, different stuff like that. Just watching him have to get up and leave and never come back was something that was so, so hard for me to watch, you know?
0: Uh, so I wanted to ask, so... You know all this happens, and now you know, college age. And I know, um, you're doing stuff getting into the mental health field to uh, do stuff to probably feels like you're almost giving back. Um, so yeah. what are you doing
1: now? What was that?
0: What are you doing now? How do you live with oh. it? Sense that,
1: yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so because of therapy, because of again, my, my view on therapy just changed so much. I'm actually still in therapy, you know, years later, which, um, you know, not as often now, but definitely still something that, that helps me. And I just felt such a passion when I, when I was seeing a therapist, you know, when, when I was, um, when I was, you know, younger, um, just the first time seeing and just feeling a sigh of relief, getting to tell someone, you know, and and confide in someone and and just have someone hear me. You know, I, I knew, I, I thought therapy was supposed to fix you, but just to have someone hear me and just to kind of talk with me um, was something so amazing. So, yeah, so now um, I'm a psychology major. I'm a junior in college now. Um, I'm over at, at Providence. And, you know, I'm part of a research group where we, you know, research um, stuff like PTSD and, you know, different stuff like that. Um, and, and it makes me feel so good just, and, and that's why I'm, I'm so, I'm so just, I mean, proud of you guys for just doing this because there's such a stigma, especially with men and especially, you know, I think it's beautiful that, you know, Quentin, you're younger and, you know, you're doing this with your dad and it's that intergenerational. There it is. Well, you know, I'm not going to say not by much,
2: <laughs> but just I, just, no, it's, it, it's really, it's we got stuck in the rat race of life a lot, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, we joke about the uh, dynamics of whether you're uh, loving physically and stuff like that, but you get stuck in the routine of life. You're running off to practice, you're running off to this and that. I th- it's almost like as a parent, you get to know your kids more when they're older. You Absolutely. know, There's it, just this rat race of responsibility younger and you miss signals and if people don't talk, and we had this discussion earlier today, too, and yeah. um, two guys in the room said they had never talked about something and they spilled it out during the talk. Yeah. So we're, just, we're with the company for a half hour. So for you to open up your experience for others, um, I think every time you do it, they'll get someone else that really appreciates it.
1: That's, that's the most important Thing to me, and even yeah, and I think it it also gives me perspective as you know being a psychology major, right? You you learn about these things that you know you've experienced, and then also being someone who was on the other side of the chair, you know, who sat you know in therapy, um, I think is just amazing. And you know, you know, uh, podcasts like you guys are doing, and just things that bring mental health to the forefront, because that's where it should be. It it absolutely should be, and I think vulnerability is seen as weakness and it, and it shouldn't. And that's really what drove my passion to want to be in the field of mental health. Even if I got to help one person, you know, you know, it, that would be worth it to me because I was helped, you know, it's, it's a sense of right. Quentin, like you said, like wanting to give back.
0: Yeah. I think people, and we were actually, we were talking about this earlier because of the conversation we had, but I think people mix up vulnerability being a weakness but i think the real weakness is that if you're not able to find a way to handle what you are going on so you obviously you found therapy i spend um probably too much time in the gym and i do different stuff do you do anything else now that maybe you wouldn't have done if this experience hadn't happened to you because you never want the experience to happen to you but i know for me i in the weirdest way, I'm almost grateful that I've learned so much from this experience because I wouldn't be half the person I am now. And it, it changes you. So is there any stuff now that you learned looking back on uh what happened?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um COVID, especially, you know, tying that into it was a really, really tough time for me, especially because I couldn't see my dad and you know, he was in the nursing home. Um, and you know, something that carries through to today, I love running. I think running is such a great um, just release and something that drives me for, I, I think finding validation in little things like running, like going to the gym, um, like eating healthy, like even journaling, reading, like different stuff like that, different stuff that I try to do um, fulfills me. And I think that, yeah, if I hadn't gone through something like that and learned how to cope, I think learning how to cope was probably the biggest thing that that helped me. And, and like you said, like opening up about it, I think um, that was something that I didn't do before, but has helped me so much now because right, like you find, think about it, Clinton, if you didn't open up and start this podcast, we would have never realized how, you know, similar our experiences were. And I think that the more that happens and the more I open up to people, um, I actually met a girl, um, who I was working with and, Her dad um, had early onset Alzheimer's and she was, you know, confiding in me. And I said, you wouldn't believe it. Um, My dad did too, you know, so you by opening up and being vulnerable, like you just create these connections. And I think that's something that I definitely saw weakness in. But now I think it just makes you stronger being able to talk about stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's very it's interesting to me. So the three of the things you said, you said reading, journaling and running. And I think it's interesting that no, no, you didn't say scrolling on TikTok. You didn't say going. You didn't say all that stuff that that I see most younger people. That's what they do, and that's how they spend a lot of their time. And it's it's difficult for me after going through something like I went through of looking at my peers who kind of live that way, and you know, mm-hmm. you go out every weekend, and because I know for my uh, mental well being, I just can't do that. Um, yeah, you're the
2: same way, like. Yeah, I've always been, uh, yeah. that's been my escape from my childhood, is to go beat myself up physically somewhere and yeah. and and use up that anxious energy. I think it's a lost thing. Like, when you sit and write
0: for, even if it's five minutes, it's five minutes of thinking about, you know, what's going on. And when you're just scrolling mindlessly on social media, you're kind of just, you know, you're not
2: accomplishing <laughs> You're looking at everyone else's thoughts and you're not yeah. really learning more about your own. Yeah, and that's that's, that's, that's solitude writing. is really helpful. I, I always think one of the problems for this generation, so you guys are more apt to have this conversation than mine was just on most issues. Um, sometimes there's just talk and there's not a lot of preventative energy toward whether Quentin talks about you know nutrition and the physical stuff and um, maybe. Lighten up on the Friday night activity when you're younger, and in and, and continuing through your age. But I think um, we don't want, as adults, we tend not to let you guys fail. So uh-huh. that adversity that you both felt, like I think Quentin was. I think sports helped him, you know, with the ups and downs and the roller coaster of sports. I think that helped him a little bit, and I think um, the people Quinton had around him were pretty consistently demanding and Mm -hmm. it did help them that way. Um, But I think in general, we don't want kids to fail and yet for you, you guys have both had this adversity that had nothing to do with you. You didn't do anything wrong but yet you mentally go through all this you know, there's a lot of guilt. I wish I had said this. i go through it. Shame. Yeah, there's a lot
0: of You said embarrassed. You felt embarrassed.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm embarrassed about the way I treated Cindy not knowing how she was and then uh, I was exhausted you know with I'm trying to uh, I don't know how your mom was but I want to insulate Quindam but I couldn't because he could see everything that was going on right and it helped when he changed high schools because he was here less mm-hmm. but it's um we're not prepared the only thing that prepares us for these types of adversity is communicating with each other and finding out that you're not the only one out there dealing with No yeah, yeah absolutely I, I said it I, earlier I had a great earlier when I said um
0: he's complimenting himself I you. said I what, was, what I said oh, I I said I said the best education is experience growing through it yeah. so yeah. you learned so see that reaction see how it. no, no, good No ab- no I, yeah.
1: I I think that's absolutely so true and Something that I want to touch on too that you said, Quentin, that actually struck me, you know, so I just resonate so much with that. You said that a lot of people in our generation, you know, instead of using tools to to try to cope and adapt and stuff, they just go out or they scroll on TikTok, um, or they they do things that, you know, aren't um fulfilling, I guess is the word. Me. I don't yeah. want
2: to feel that discomfort, so they yeah. find alternative avoid it. And they that puts us right off from know. growing.
1: You, you, you just try to be numb. And don't get me wrong, in high school, you know, I definitely, you know, was around that scene and, you know, it, it makes you feel numb. So when when I came to college, um, I actually, I was committed to a college in, in Maryland. I was committed to Loyola in Maryland, um, if you guys are familiar with that. But um it was, you know, my dad was only given two to three years to live um about, you know, it was about two years ago, a year and a half ago at this point. And you know, it came close to deciding whether, you know, um I was gonna go. I was internally battling in my head. And I there were time slots when we could visit my dad in the nursing home because it was still the remnants of uh COVID for our senior year. And I was so excited to go to Loyola because you know it was party school and it was so fun, whatever. Um, but I had applied to Suffolk in Boston and I hugged my dad goodbye um, when I went to go see him um, right before the last day of school. So that I I just, I felt so sad, I guess, thinking that I could put getting drunk in front of spending the last moments with my dad. Um, so I went to my guidance counselor and I said, is there any way I can still go to Suffolk? And this was like, right around the times of like making your college video like you wear your sweatshirt and you're all you know whatever um and then I ended up going to Suffolk and I think right like I was so frustrated with things that I just put all my time and effort into academics and got to transfer to an amazing school and um you know just I I put a lot of my time into that it wasn't I thought that you know becoming numb was going to fulfill me but it's the exact opposite just just as you were saying
0: yeah well I, I did that too for even in college I did mm-hmm. it and then I hurt my knees so I couldn't play basketball anymore and I needed to find something else like basketball like you said sports was always like that outlet so then when I lost that I was like I started losing but obviously your story resonates a lot with us and it, it almost too much where we kind of started. Reliving. Well, that's why we're smirking. Yeah. We started, I started reliving a lot of stuff when you were talking, it was weird, but uh, to see the whole point of us doing this is to hear people's stories. And um, hopefully the people that we talk to all, well, everybody that we talk to all has made it out on the other side. And I think you're a great example of that. Where now you're doing well in college and you want to give back and, um, I think that's really cool. It's the same thing that I'm trying to do, and same thing you're trying to do in a in a different way with a lot of stuff. And
2: yeah, it's um I I guess you know, you always pushed at 18 to figure What do you want to do? Like what do you want to do? Right. Like you're supposed to know, right? And because of the situation you went through, it actually gave you a path and a direction as to where you wanted to go, which is awesome because I think 90% of us are not prepared at 18, 20 even 25, um, sometimes in your late sixties, but I don't know anyone like that, but I think that's really commendable and you will get being committed. You will get there so much quicker too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's something again, that it always makes me laugh because this is something that I thought was so awful. I just thought therapy was, um, or even mental health in general. Like I just kind of pushed it aside, you know, learning from my parents where it's, you know, right. Like you said earlier, you just tough it out and you don't, you know, focus on that, but just by being exposed to something that, you know, and, and to, and to get serious, like my dad's death shattered my world. Like this, and I'm sure you both feel the same. Like this was such a horrible experience that I genuinely wouldn't wish on anyone. I, I wouldn't, wish this on my worst enemy it's just it's horrible but to to find the good in it just like you guys are doing with this with this podcast and just to find the good in something that's so bad is just so honorable and admirable so
2: and how's your mom
1: she's good she's good Um, yeah yeah she um I mean obviously you know on holidays and and stuff and you know sometimes just randomly because you know grief grief hits randomly sometimes. Um, but you know, she, um, she, after this, she did start going to therapy. She started, um, volunteering, you know, on top of working, she started focusing on, um, she used to be a marathon runner actually. So, um, but now, you know, she tore her meniscus. So now she'll go on walks to clear her head. And, you know, you just, you see the difference because I feel like when my dad was sick and in the nursing home, she would go every day after work. You know, she was there making sure that he was taken care of. Because, you know, nursing homes there, a lot of the times, it's... Um, it's a real
2: experience.
1: They yeah. can tend to be pretty neglectful, too. So she was always there. And I felt like that was so much worse. Because you're watching your husband of, you know, I think they were married, uh I don't know, 30 years. They were married about 30 years. You're, you're watching this person... Decline. And I feel like after he died, you know, the death hit so hard of not having that person anymore. But she finally, I guess, felt free because at some point you're not you're not taking care of your husband. You're you're taking care of someone who doesn't know who you are, doesn't know who they are, they don't talk, they barely walk. You know, it it's it becomes just a mental um challenge every day. So I feel like now. Um, you know, there are oftentimes where grief hits, but I feel like she's finally learning to live again after this experience. Well, that's
2: great. That's I think
0: it's a a good message to end it about finding the finding the good and all the bad. And I think it is it is almost human nature to be able to find good in really bad situations, and something that I think everyone's capable of, but it's hard to see all the time and. Um, to be able to find that and to be able to do what you're doing is really impressive. Um, we're trying to do the same thing. Um, and it's, it's something, it is extremely fulfilling the more you go with it. I mean, it's easier to wake up every day, like knowing what we the type of day we had today, it was easier to, uh, want to get through the day. And I think it's something that's really valuable to everyone. So thank you for coming on and sharing, um, a very similar very very similar story to ours and yeah and sharing your great
2: attitude which yes. is a huge part of getting by right you you have mm-hmm. a great attitude and you seem to have a sense of purpose so we're rooting for you and thank uh, you so put much you the, put it, things in the right place and the, all the happiness of the world too yeah
0: and you mm-hmm. are the example of why i wanted to start doing this type thing of right when you've reached out that it's just so, of uh, the uncomfortable silence that we all live in, and we don't know what's going on, it is uh, a great example. So, I'm happy you were able to join us today. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: And...